Welcome to the Walk with the Wise podcast. I'm Matthew Capone, and I'm the pastor at Cheyenne Mountain Presbyterian Church in Southwest Colorado Springs. This summer, our community is going through the book of Proverbs together, and the book of Proverbs is a book about wisdom. One of the themes of Proverbs is that wisdom is a community project or a group project. That means that we need other people to help us become wise. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 tells us that he who walks with the wise grows wise. My goal with this podcast is to talk with wise people about various topics in the book of Proverbs so that we would grow together in our wisdom. On this episode, I talk with Steve Garber. Steve is a professor at Regent College, where he leads the Master of Arts in Leadership, Theology, and Society. He has spent his life thinking and writing about the intersection between our faith and our work, and he's the author of several books, including Visions of Vocation and The Seamless Life. I interviewed Steve here because the book of Proverbs also has a lot to say about our work in this world. So on this episode, we talk about how our work matters to God. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve Garber. Hey, Steve, thanks for um, being with us today. It's just a real treat to get to talk with you. I shared with someone that I was getting the chance to connect and they told me, well, that's the the most uh, authoritative expert in the world about faith and work. So it's just a privilege and thanks for sharing your time. It's good to see you again, Matthew. And I wish it was possible just to step more easily into your life there in the Springs. Yeah. As I mentioned to you, we're going through the book of Proverbs as a congregation. And one of the verses that I've really taken to heart over my life is Proverbs 13 verse 20, which says he who walks with the wise grows wise. And so one of my goals during this time has been to find wise people to talk to about various issues in the book of Proverbs to take that verse to heart and also to model it. And of course, you're considered by me and by many people to be a wise man, especially when it comes to issues of work and how our work in this world relates to our faith and our relationship with God. Um, So that's what I wanted to to discuss with you. And you shared with me uh, earlier that you've been doing some thinking about the book of Proverbs recently. And I'd love to hear just what's been stirring in your mind about that. Sure. Um, Well, as we grow in faith and we want to make sense of scripture and live as our father in the faith, John Calvin offered to us all of life through the spectacles of scripture. um, I found of course that the book of Proverbs had 31 chapters along the way and thought, well, that's pretty, you know, easy to once a day read a proverb to grow in my own life. So probably in my early 20s, I began to do that regularly through the months of those years of my life. And and having lived in Washington, D.C. for a long time and, you know, in the real politique of the city, the the word of Lord Bismarck from the German chancellor from a century and a half ago, if you want to respect sausage or law, then don't watch either being made and having to deal with, you know, not walking away from the mess and the sausage making of the city, but how do you stick with and stay at a vocation of service in the city of Washington? Um, I began to think about those first verses of Proverbs, which speak about uh, the, the point of these, the point of these Proverbs, point of the writer, and the wrestling with the word prudence, and then in the very same verse, actually, to do what is right and just and fair. And realizing that in many ways, the debate of the city of Washington, maybe all capital cities, is over the question of jurisprudence, um, whether, whether we get it right or not, 
whether we have we defined it or not in the way which is faithful and true or not, but it is how do we work out a life together in the world, publicly and communally and corporately and politically. And realizing that, you know, in the very first words of the Proverbs is this vision of a just prudence. Uh, and uh, prudence, of course, is a word which is etymologically related to the word we call wisdom these days. And, and uh, but it's making prudential judgments, it's making good judgments, faithful judgments. And, uh, but it isn't for the sake of that in the abstract or in an ivory tower, but it's actually for the sake of doing what is right and just and fair. So in some ways, this biblical vision of wisdom, which you know the whole the, the book is about, is not never for the sake of being a, a guru somewhere who lives high in a mountain, whether it's in the Himalayas or the, the Rockies of Colorado, but it's somebody who actually understands what life means and how it's supposed to be worked out for the sake of before the face of God, what is right and just and fair. So that's some of my, the background of my thinking. Yeah, that's really helpful. You're reminding me of my conversation with Zach S. Wine. I talked with him on a few issues about the Proverbs just as an introduction. And he pointed out that the Proverbs is a community book, which yeah. I think is part of what I'm hearing you say. This is how we live together. Yeah. And it's meant to be a book. It's not just written you know, individually to you, Steve, or to me, Matthew, but it's written to a, a group of people about, um, about how to live well. And then the other thing I'm hearing you say is something that, you know, Trimper Longman points out, which is that in that beginning to Proverbs, it's, it's very ethical. Right. There's an ethical component to it. It's not just here's how you live a pleasurable life, but here's how you live a life that's just and fair. Right. And of course, given, you know, where I first met you in the university, historic university community of Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, and whether you go to school at William & Mary or whether you go to school at the Air Force Academy in the Springs there, I would say the temptation that Walker Percy identified a generation ago, you can get all A's and still flunk life. That's just there for all of us. You know, you could excel academically, you could be very smart, you could pass all the tests, you know, but you could miss the point of life too. And what the Proverbs is about is arguing for a kind of intelligence, a, a moral intelligence. Do you remember Trevor Longman's argument for this being a book of ethical vision? It's a moral vision. It's a, about a moral imagination, about a moral intelligence for the sake of living a faithful, good, godly, holy life, doing what is right and just and fair. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He spent some time talking about talking about that as well. There's this point in Proverbs chapter 30, where it says the lizard, you know, is wise because it knows how to be in king's houses. Uh, so it's an animal that's not intelligent in the way we would think about it, but it has a, a certain skill. Uh, one thing Longman points out. Yeah. Well, as we think about um, just the topic of work in Proverbs, one of the biggest challenges, I know you have a big heart for in the church, is this, this idea that somehow there's uh, work that really matters more than other work. And there are people who are tempted to believe, well, the work that I do, uh, it's okay, but man, it would just be better if I could be a missionary or I could be a pastor. But so what I do is not significant as what some other people do. And yet what the book of Proverbs points us to is that all of life, right, is really in God's world. And so I, what would you say to someone who has that kind of paradigm of, hey, my work, it's just not as important as the pastor's work, or it's not as important as, you know, the Christian author's work. 
Mm-hmm. It's such a good question, Matthew. And in some ways, in the strangest of my life, it's really the question of my life. I, I doubt that I go a week ever in my life without somebody coming to me wanting to talk about that, who feels some kind of perplexity or experiences some kind of quandary over that very issue, that very question. So I spent an hour yesterday with somebody from San Antonio, Texas. This is our second conversation in a couple of weeks, but he wrote me a few weeks ago and said, this is my dilemma. Can you, can we talk about it. And, you know, and I said to him yesterday in our conversation, he was sort of apologizing for this. I said, don't apologize because this is what I think about. It is my life, really. It is, these are the conversations of my life, and I realize they matter uh, to us. Um, and uh, so what would I say? Well, in some ways, it would depend on who I was talking to, of course. But, you know, what I would probably do is uh, um, make sure that we start at the beginning of the story of, of, of human life under the sun. And uh, I think if we take, you know, a serious rootedness in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we realize, in fact, that there's a bigger story that's being given to us to live within in God's world of, of redemptive history. Um, and uh, to put it in shorthand, I think oftentimes the reason we get we stumbled over this is we don't start at the beginning. Um, to put it in language of some of my friends, uh, we argue for a two-chapter story of the scriptures rather than a four-chapter story of the scriptures. So the two-chapter story is basically that we are a sinful people living in a sinful world and, and Christ has come to save us from our sin and we get to go to heaven someday, you know? Um, and uh, well, that's true in part, but it, in some ways, without the first chapter and the last chapter of the story, we don't know what the story is all about, to put it quite simply. Um, and uh, so if we miss the beginning of time, the first chapter of the story of this is who God is and who we are and how we're to live in God's world, it's hard to know why, you know, planting a garden or planting a field of wheat or, you know, developing an iPhone or you can pick your place in the world, why it would really matter to God. Um, but if you take these words of God in Genesis chapters one and two as being fundamental and foundational, and of course we learn from Jesus in this way, ask about the meaning of marriage at a certain point in the gospels. He says, what was this supposed to be like? What was it like in the beginning? You know, so he actually takes us back through the fall, back before the fall, and says, when we think through who we're to be in the world, how we live in the world, we need to realize that, that, that there's something before the fall that gives normative direction to us as human beings. Mm-hmm. Marriage means this, because why? Well, because it's supposed to be like us in the very beginning of time. And so I think when we stumbled over this, as I talk to people, it's typically because they don't actually begin at the beginning of the story. And if they don't begin at the beginning of the story, often they don't go to the end of the story either. They don't have a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, they don't understand in some ways the meaning of the prayer. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we miss the bookends, the first and last chapters of the story, I think we stumbled over this. Uh, one of my teachers has been John Stott. I'll give you just this as a, a little window into this. But I still have these words ringing in my the ears of my imagination of his Oxbridgian, you know, you know, ways of speaking so eloquently and passionately and pastorally as he did in the world, all over the world. But saying, why would you blame the world for being the world? Uh, why would you, why would you blame a dark room for being a dark room, he would say. Why wouldn't you ask, why wasn't the light turned on? 
why didn't Christians actually ask what it would mean to be the light of the world in the worlds of economics and politics and the military and education and the arts and, and on and on? Uh, why would we say, well, the world is the world, you see, but Stott's argument was that Jesus' teaching, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he calls, Stott called those affective commodities, they affect their environments. And uh, when we miss the mission of Christ and don't see it in terms of its broad, deep range from Genesis to Revelation, as being that story of the history of redemption, it's easy to imagine that, that it's a more truncated reductionist story than it actually is. And uh, we do blame the world for being in the world. We don't understand that actually, you know, why are things where they are? Well, because we failed to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That's uh, the teaching of Jesus and Stott made, underscored that with tremendous pastoral authority. It's been instructive to me, Matthew. Yeah, no, that's, that's helpful. And that, that reminder of, of creation is reminding me of a, a phrase you use, one of your chapters in your book, The Seamless Life, you talk about repairing the world. Yeah. And there's this sense in which our work, no matter where we're at, whether it's inside the institutional church or outside of the institutional church, our hope is that we'd be a part of that work of repairing the world. And given who you are and the church you pastor and the place you went to seminary and the theological convictions that are yours as well as they're mine, um, you know, we have a rich tradition, I would say. Not all ideas are equal, I don't think, sadly. Um, you know, I'm not a Hindu in that sense at all. I'm not a syncretist in any way at all, really. So I think in some ways there's a, a richness of Reformation teaching here that actually does help us see that, you know, in Martin Luther's, you know, best outrageous word <laughs> to his own generation, saying, you know, Augustinian monk that he was, um, uh, when the milkmaid squeezes the teats of the cow, her fingers are as holy as the priest who offers the holy sacrament. And we could be outraged by that and think, what did he say? You know, but he was, of course, in your face making an argument that the fact that all of, life's, of, of, of life was to be seen as holy to the Lord. Um, and I think that really is the biblical vision. It's the vision of the Reformation. It's my vision, too. Yeah, that's great. I want to dig into something you said a little bit earlier. Um, so tell us, why do, why, how does making iPhones matter to God? <laughs> good. Uh -huh. That's a good question. Um, well, we have to be careful in bringing, of course, our own th theological and hermeneutical lenses, maybe cultural lenses to the scriptures. It's always a danger to do that. Um, it's called eisegesis in a certain way, reading into the text what we want the text to say to us. Um, rather than doing exegesis, which is, of course, what your gift is and your training has been, to read out of the text what it actually is saying to God's people in the world. Um, so on the one hand, I don't really object to somebody saying Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. Though somebody really wanted to talk about it, I would say, are you sure we should name it that way? Because that's more of an of a overlay that we've given to it in church history in more recent times. Jesus never called it that, and I don't think I really want to refer to it that way. But if somebody wants to do that, I'm not going to argue with them very hard about it. But I would always say at the same time, but don't make that be the center point of God's work in the world either. Because there was a, a first commission too. There was a, a great commission given at the very beginning of the time too, before the fall, which had never been taken away from human beings in God's world. Um, so sometimes we call it the cultural mandate, but we could call it the first of the great commissions too. Um, and uh, in that first of the great commissions, you know, 
understand the world, love the world, care for the world, develop the world. That's the language of Genesis 1 and 2. Um, of course, immediately it had to do with, can you build a fire that could actually cook, you know, your, your make big bread with it, you know? Could you actually take this piece of wood and make a guitar with it? You know? These are the early examples of this and the children of Adam and Eve. Um, they learned how to do this and how to do this and how to do this and how to do this, really. Um, but I would say, you know, that um, uh, again, in my theology, I use this language of common grace a lot. Uh, and the best theologians I know would argue that there's, there is saving grace, which is God's grace. It's what God does in the world. Uh, and we, you know, call it amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It is that kind of great grace of God that saves us from our sin. But if we only have, you know, the categories of sacred and secular to think with, then all that really matters is what the best theology calls saving grace. We don't have any room for common grace. I happen to be married for, to a very good woman whom I met in Rocky Mountain National Park there in Colorado a long time ago. And I refuse to think that her good kisses to me are simply secular kisses. They're not that, actually. You know, that's a, it, is a, it, it misses the point, actually, of the holy, sacramental, wonderful gifts of God through the kisses of my wife. They are not saving graces. Like a good cup of Earl Grey tea in the morning is not a saving grace to me, though I do love that morning by morning. Um, I love the view of Long's Peak at night, you know, the sunset coming down the peaks of the, there in the park and thinking how gorgeous and majestic it is to see the sunset over the majesty of this great, great mountain in Colorado. I love that. It is not saving, though. It is not salvific. Um, what God does is save us from our sins. What we are given to do in God's world is to offer the grace of God to the world in and through the work of our lives. It's called common grace, and I would argue it's common grace for the common good. It is taking up that vision of Jesus, and I would say interpreted and offered to us from John Stott, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. So salt, of course, is pushing back against decay and corruption. Light is saying, it could be like this, you know. Look at it like this instead. It could be done in this way, in fact. So um, you've got glasses on your face there. You know, are those just secular glasses, Matthew? You know, you've got a computer you're looking at me through here. We're talking across from miles and miles from each other. Is this just a secular thing we're doing, actually? Um, you're not being saved from your sin, neither am I in this conversation. Um, what's the point of it then? Um, and I think the point of it is that this is the world that God imagined, where we actually give thanks to God for the graces that he gives to us. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. We give thanks to God for, you know, the rain in the early afternoon of Colorado when it just cleans the air for a half an hour and we go on to a hot and, you know, dry day and we think, well, it's refreshing a little bit, but it didn't rain all day and all night and the next day either, really. It doesn't do that in Colorado in the summertime. Um, it isn't a saving grace. It's a, it is a good grace, though. It's an ordinary grace. It's a common grace. So to me, iPhones and eyeglasses and, you know, uh, MR, you know, MRI machines and, you know, a, a good cookie in the afternoon. These are the gifts of God to us. Like my wife's kisses are good gifts of God to me. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful, Steve. I think what I'm, yeah, it's, there's Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, and there's also the end of Matthew, and we want but to take both of those seriously. And so if we believe, well, the pastor's work really matters, but mine doesn't. We're setting them against each other. 
And of course, if you don't even listen carefully to Matthew 28, it does say, Jesus, it does say, teach them all the things I have commanded you. And if, you know, John 1 is the record of who Jesus is, and he is there from the very beginning of time, the word, you know, was there from the very beginning, and he becomes flesh in Jesus in John chapter 1. Um, the story we believe in actually begins before Matthew chapter one. It goes back to Genesis chapter one. That's what all the things I've taught you and commanded you. It goes back to Genesis chapter one. So some ways to isolate in those, that last verse of Matthew 28 is to some ways, not even to take the word of Jesus very, 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 you know, faithfully. It's to, it's to miss the point of what Jesus said. So, because it's the whole, whole of scripture that Jesus says, I've commanded you. This is the word of God. We say, this is the word of the Lord. It's the word of Jesus, the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. And Jesus himself had some things to say about work. And, you know, when soldiers came and talked to him, he didn't tell them to stop being soldiers. He told them to be good soldiers. So I love how you're mentioning that in Matthew 28. That's part of what Jesus has commanded us. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. This person from Texas who I was talking to yesterday, you know, his family is from a cattle ranching family in Texas, and he's been expected to take up the fam family and fa his father's work for the, all the years of his life. He went to, you know, not to CSU in Colorado, but to Texas A&M in Texas and with the intent of learning skills to take up the family business, essentially, but came in under the influence of a certain ministry at the university there, and the ministry basically taught a more dualistic view of discipleship, a dualistic view of life. And so, essentially, those who are most faithful to Jesus will work in ministry to students, like you're being ministered to here at the university. If you're less faithful than that, not so seriously, Jesus, Jesus says as that, just get a secular job then and support your friends who are more serious than you. So here he is at age 26 with, in some ways, so what many people would love to imagine having the future with is to take up a business in his family's heritage. And, and uh, um, but in some ways, the view of life and of labor that he's been given so far in these early years of his 20s has been to say, well, all that's just secular, you see. Um, if you have to do that, then, you know, realize the point of life is to do ministry, but don't go into business because business matters to God or the world. It's just, it's just a way to make money to support people in ministry. And that teaching, Matthew, is all over the world in a terrible way, I would say. Yeah, so making iPhones matters to God because God's commanded us to be fruitful. And, you know, you, you mentioned in your book, too, and many people have Jeremiah 29 to seek the good of the city, and iPhones are a part of that. I mean, they certainly contribute to the good of the city. And you've even talked about the things that we're using right now to connect. Right, right. And if, again, if the only categories we have are sacred and secular, then it's a hard way to look at the world. Um, I don't think probably you put your glasses on the, your face in the morning and say, I'm putting on my secular glasses again. Um, to use the metaphor of Calvin one more time, you're really wanting to, metaphorically speaking, to see all of life through the spectacles of scripture. So. Yeah, I love how you brought up both the Lord's Prayer a little while ago and then also the Great Commission and the fact that if we teach people everything Jesus has commanded, it's going to be a lot of things about our work. And if we take the Lord's Prayer seriously, it means we're going to want God's kingdom to be here on earth just as it is in heaven. And that kingdom is, is comprehensive. It involves everything. All right. Everything. Again, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty deeply born 
son of the Reformation here. So, um, you know, a century plus ago, the prime minister of the Netherlands was a man named Abraham Kuyper. And very famously, he gave these words at a certain point in his life, his public life. There isn't a square inch of the whole of reality over which Jesus, who alone is Lord, does not declare mine. And I have lived my, my life with that hope in my heart, Matthew. Yeah, that's a good hope. I want to drill down a little bit more, too, on the, on the practical side of things. You know, at my church and in this city, we have many, many people who work for the military. And I'm wondering how you would encourage someone in that sphere, just in the, the meaning of their work, that it's part of God's kingdom. Let's say you have a soldier and his job is to be in charge of several vehicles on the on the post, on the fort, and he's there to make sure they're running properly day after day. And maybe at times it feels like it's Groundhog Day. He's getting up and doing the same thing over and over, and he's not really sure how this work um, connects to God's world. Or maybe you have a soldier and he's writing military doctrine uh, for the future. I mean, as that person's wondering, how does this matter to God? How would you encourage them? Mm-hmm. That's a good question, Matthew. And I am the son of a World War II veteran, and I have a son who's a, and been in active duty with the U.S. Army for many years. And uh, so in some ways, my life is bookended by the military. Um, I think, and I, on the one hand, you've already quoted Jesus, which is a good remembering the Gospels here. Jesus didn't say to the mil- man in the military, to the soldier, stop doing this secular work and go do something religious and holy. He said, go back, be a good soldier. A soldier who makes prudential judgments in those language of Proverbs chapter one, a just man who does what is right and just and fair. Um, to be that kind of a soldier. Be the salt of the earth, be the light of the world as a soldier. That's what Jesus teaches, not to, to leave the military for the sake of a more holy life. Um, I do think a lot of my life about you know, the, the language of Jeremiah and you know, we can abstract verses all over the scriptures, of course, and we can abstract Jeremiah 29 and say, seek the flourishing of the city, uh, plant trees, build houses, get married, you know, pray for the city to flourish, because unless it flourishes, you won't flourish. We can hear those words and put them on little cards in our offices or something, but it's important to remember that Jeremiah is speaking to the Babylonian exiles. Um, <laughs> It might be possible to imagine, you know, given how some people view Colorado Springs, well, that's a pretty nice place to, to live, actually, isn't it? You know, pretty nice climate, and we've got mountains right there, and isn't, it isn't New York City, after all, or L.A., after all. People move from L.A. to come to Colorado Springs because it's a nicer place to live, I think, in some ways. You can imagine Babylon as being a nice place, maybe. Seek the flourishing of Colorado Springs? Well, that's easier to imagine than seeking the flourishing of New York City or L.A., that's a kind of a terrible place to want the flourishing of, isn't it? Um, but what Jeremiah is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's the Babylonian exiles. What they didn't know at the time was for millennia following, we would all think about Babylon as the most iconically bad city in the history of the world. <laughs> Babylon, after all. You know? And what you know, Jeremiah is saying, seek the flourishing of Babylon. Of Babylon. Pray for it to flourish. Uh, now, to push it into a little bit further here, which is helpful to me, is to realize that you know they were not just anonymous exiles. We know some of them actually by name. Let's take one, for example, named Daniel. Uh, 
And Daniel was a Babylonian exile, of course, taken from Israel and the land of the promise and stolen away and captive as he was and put into a, you know, a particular school for promising young public servants. And, you know, what does he do for the rest of his life? Well, it'd be in some ways a, a misreading of the Bible to say, well, Daniel, you see, was you know, such a holy man. He did holy things, didn't he, for a holy people. He was, wasn't he something kind of like a, the advisor to Jewish religious, religious practices and, you know, in Babylon? The best way we can read the scriptures as I read it, Matthew, is he actually was the chief political counselor to three different rulers. We could use harder words like despots or tyrants to describe Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. And, you know, we could say they were tyrants, actually. Um, but somehow in the providence of God, in the way that God had called Daniel to this public life of public service, he was chosen three different times by three different political regimes because of his wisdom, to use the good word of the morning here, because of his wisdom, his prudential judgment, a wise man that he was, to be able to give counsel on what? Well, what do political counselors do? They weigh in on military strength, to use a good word here for Colorado Springs and your church, actually. They give counsel on water resources and building highways and agricultural you know, production. That's what political counselors do. They're involved with the stuff of life of the people, making sure that the one in charge knows all he needs to know to make the kind of judgment that will have political consequence for the people over time. That was Daniel's work, actually. Um, I think that's very instructive to us to realize that he did that kind of work, really. Uh, that's what he did with his life. Um, it wasn't all happy and didn't all turn out to be like roses and peaches and cream because the very last word about Daniel in the whole book of Daniel is, and Daniel was perplexed. I don't find that to be a, a bad word, actually. I think in my life, because I live in a now but not yet world myself, I think, well, on this side of the consummation of all things, I get it, you know, because there's a lot of my life which I think when all is said and done, I'm perplexed. I don't understand. God, I believe in you. I trust you. I'm perplexed with your providence. Um, so it's a good word to think about why we should care about cities and societies uh, because we live in a long history of people of God who've done that. Yeah, that's encouraging to me. I mean, I like you, I'm perplexed many times. Yeah. And yeah, I, I love that category of looking at characters in the Bible and saying, okay, well, here's someone who had work. and how did God meet them and honor them in that and use them in the midst of that? Yes, I do too. Yeah, that's, that's rich and, and encouraging and life-giving. I know one thing that you talk about a lot, I've talked about in other places, is this overlap between the idea of vocation and occupation. And I think that's one of the challenges we hit up against when we talk about these things like, well, why does an iPhone matter to God? And why does my military service matter to God? And why does my work in the banking sphere matter to God? Sometimes that's a theological question. And sometimes it's just a personal cry of, man, this is not something I enjoy. Right. In that overlap of those two circles. Mm -hmm. And some of that, I suppose, gets into discernment of how God has gifted us. But I'm, I'm wondering, as you've thought about that, what are ways we can see that that circ that overlap increase where more and more the idea of vocation and occupation overlap? 
again, you ask, you ask good questions, Matthew. Um, for some reason, I was thinking about my father uh, the last few days, and he married my mother who went to Greeley High School, you know, a few hours north of you there in the Springs, and, and she was the oldest of five daughters. They all went to Greeley High School. Their uncle was the principal of the high school, and you know, my grandfather spent most of his life buying and selling cattle throughout Colorado. And, uh, but my father was from Pennsylvania, and an industrializing Pennsylvania and married a girl from Colorado after World War II. He got off the, the, the boat, coming back from Europe and got a train, you know, and then a bus, you know, made a way to Greeley and got married, you know, almost immediately and, you know, went to CSU. Uh, uh, he had done well in biology and, and uh, botany as an undergraduate and, you know, here he is in his mid-twenties at that point, a World War II vet already. And, and uh, I was not alive, of course, at the time. I was just, um, and, you know, maybe an imagination somewhere in somebody's mind. Um, but somehow his professors at CSU saw this kid from Western Pennsylvania who never had seen anything like Colorado before in his life, but did well in certain kinds of academic disciplines. And, but he had World War II behind him. He'd had experiences in the military of leadership and responsibility and, you know, and enough kind of gumption and smarts, probably about the ordinary things of life that they said to him at a certain point, after having done a master's, you know, in Fort Collins, would you take up responsibility for the state of Colorado in the San Luis Valley, a little town called Monte Vista. There's a research center there and it focuses on the agricultural products of the valley, sheep and potatoes. And I was born in the town of Monte Vista, right underneath the Sangre de Cristos. Um, well, after a few years of doing that, my father's professors at CSU said, we want you to come back and teach with us someday, but you need to get a PhD first. So would you, we've arranged for you to go to UC Davis to get a PhD, but we want you to come back to Fort Collins though someday. You know? And uh, we moved from Colorado to California in my little boy years and spent several years in Davis. and. And then in the strangeness of decision-making and providence and where we go and where we don't go in life, he decided to stay with the University of California. He did that for the rest of his life instead of coming back to CSU. Uh, and uh, so vocation, occupation, um, they're good words in my mind. They're not the same words. Vocation has to do with the deeper, longer story of someone's life, a way that makes Matthew Capone, different than his, you know, college friend, Daniel Council, you know, who's my son-in-law. Um, uh, here you both were at Davidson College as undergraduates and both industrious and intelligent and hardworking and, you know, did well in your schoolwork and got to know each other through the ministry on the campus there. And, and uh, you had certain things you were interested in in terms of your life as a 21 year old and so did he. And he spent the next several years in you know, medical laboratories at the University of Virginia. And you know, now is here in graduate school in Boise, Idaho. And that isn't you, you did a year or two of an internship at a church in Williamsburg and went off to seminary in St. Louis. And here you are pastoring in Colorado Springs now. Um, and you're different people, of course. So in some ways, the differences like that are more what I would call the, the vocational uniquenesses that make Matthew, Matthew, and Daniel, Daniel, that made my father, my father. Uh, occupation, I would say, is a different word than vocation. Occupation speaks about where we are at a particular time of life, a particular set of responsibilities and relationships that mark us and shape us for particular seasons of life. 
you were pastoring in Williamsburg as a 22-year-old when I first met you. Um, you're still pastoring, but you know, occupationally, it's a different setting in your life than you were six, seven years ago. Um, and uh, my father, you know, was good in biology, <clears throat> botany. You know, as a 20-year-old, his professors at you know college saw that. His professors at CSU saw that after his years in the military, with the military experiences of leadership and service that he gained, they thought maybe you could do this for the whole state of Colorado, you know, take up this responsibility. Would you come back and teach with us someday? Well, my father didn't work with potatoes for the rest of his life. He began working with Colorado's main agriculture product in the 20th century, which was cotton. His PhD was on the diseases of cotton, interestingly. And uh, so occupationally, his setting was a different setting than he did when I was born in the San Luis Valley was working on potatoes and sheep. Um, the vocation, I would say, was only deepened and clarified over time, though. So for me, the longing in our hearts as human beings is to see more of an overlap between the deeper sense of who I am, you know, who I am, in that famous Eric Little, you know, statement, God made me fast. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Really. So what else, how's God made me? Where do I find God's pleasure? And realizing that, you know, that'll be done differently over the course of the year of life for most of us. Most of us don't find ourselves in positions in the 21st century where we end up at age 16 doing this and for the rest of life, that's what we do. Our great-great-grandfathers lived in that world more. We don't so much now. Um, we have choices to make and there are blessings and curses to us in some ways, the choices we have to make. But finding the longing, which is for more connection or coherence between the sense of this is who I am and this is what I do, I think we long for that. And of course, a healthier, happier life is where there's more coherence than not. So the, the distinction then, the difference between occupation and vocation, some of it, it sounds like is a, a matter of patience, of timetable, that it takes a long time to discern perhaps what it is that gives us pleasure and to see this thread that runs through our lives and our work. And we, you know, that might be something that grows uh, over many years. Yeah, I would say that that's, that is what typically happens for us. And I'm just thinking of, again, your local setting there in Colorado Springs, not all the 18 year olds who come to the Air Force Academy will be fighter pilots. Maybe they all imagine they want to be at age 17 and 18, but you know, like my good friend Ray, you know, who's, I've been my friend for most of my life now. He was, you know, everything, young academy student ought to be, you know, athletic and smart and willing to work hard. And, you know, at age 20, he finds he has a sinus problem though, something between his eyes and his nose and his brain that doesn't quite work in the same way when he gets up high in the air, you know? So <laughs> a huge disappointment for him really, you know? Was he no longer an honorable Air Force Academy grad? Well, he spent the next 25 years of his life in the Pentagon worlds, you know, becoming a very valuable part of the, Air Force and the Pentagon commitments to the U.S. and the world, but his occupation was different than he imagined, imagined it to be. I have a, another son whose father-in-law also went to the academy there. He did fly jets, you know, for the Air Force for most of his career, actually. Um, he's no longer doing that. He didn't stop living his life when he stopped doing that. He you know, began to have other responsibilities that in some ways took the training, the insights, the experience he had and he began to occupy, which is a way, good way to use the word, to occupy a different set of responsibilities and relationships. 
you know, some years later in his life. Uh, so I think that word occupy, to use it like that, that we occupy different relationships and responsibilities along the way of life, even as we are longing for and praying for a deepened sense of vocation through life is the way to see that. Yeah, there's a, there's a patience and a process too. Right, right. We have to embrace that. We, we don't expect to find a vocation immediately, but there's, I'm reminded of that quote, I think it was by Kierkegaard, that we live life forwards, but we understand it backwards. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's an element of that that's true with vocation. Yes. I think that's what we long for, Lance. I think in the sadness of life sometimes, in the brokenness of history, sometimes people don't find much of that at all in this, in this you know, frail world. And we all should lament that. But I think we all long for that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'd love to dig into some of the specific items of work in the book of Proverbs. And, you know, I went through the book and tried to pull out every single verse that I felt like addressed work in some way. And one concept that keeps showing up over and over uh, is the idea of just hard work, diligent work. And, you know, as I think about that, I think that's, that's wonderful, right? It's, it is important to work hard. How do we tie that to a, the vision of the Bible as a whole. The one thing in your, your book, The Seamless Life, you said that really stuck with me is um, to love the land means that you work at your work, whether anyone is watching or not, because as is true in the rest of life, love makes it possible to keep keeping on. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that, you know, for myself, but for others, as we think about diligent work, what is it that gives us hope and motivation and keeps us moving forward to, to do excellent work and to keep at it over many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that probably for, we're all different people, of course. And so in some ways our motivations are differently put together. Um, uh, when I was 16, 17, you know, I was raised in an agricultural world of Colorado and California. Somewhere I met Meg in Rocky Mountain National Park. We were 17-year-olds. I was baling hay for most of that summer on the, along the front range of Colorado. And uh, I grew up liking to work like that. I liked to be hot and sweaty and use the muscles I had as a 16, 17-year-old. I enjoyed that kind of work. Um, That's different kind of work than writing a book, which I've done more of in these last later years of my life. Um, you know, it's wonderful to see a book published finally, to have it in your hands. You think, well, ah, it's here now, finally. Thanks be to God, really. But I never think about that, Matthew, without thinking, it's a lot of hard work to write a book, actually. It isn't the same work, hard work that baling hay in the middle of July in Colorado is, you know, um, which I loved as a 17-year-old. Um, I would say I do love to be in my study and to have my computer on my lap and, and to think things through and try to get the words and the ideas right. That's a particular kind of a challenge to me now in my life. I, I enjoy that challenge and it's been satisfying to me and I've worked hard at that for a number of years now trying to write different books. Um, and it never ever is far from my mind. It's hard work to write a book. <laughs> it's hard work to write a book actually. Um, but it's a different kind of hard work, I think. And I think I, but I do think that, you know, somehow to keep on keeping on 
you know, if you're listening to the word of the Lord in the book of Proverbs, somehow to, to be somebody who's known for industry, which is another way to describe this. Uh, maybe the two words industry and integrity could go together here, where you are somebody who's marked by the willingness to work hard, but you're also somebody who's marked by the consistency of your life and the way you work hard, where you could be a trustworthy person even though you're, you're, not, you're not just muscles, you're brawn and brains together in some kind of a fascinating way. And so where you're, the work you do is seen as you know, reliable and trustworthy and it actually is attentive to others around you. And it isn't just about you being the smartest guy or the strongest guy in the room or the, on the floor, but in fact, the work you do has some sense of perspective about it. And you are known to be somebody who gets the work done, yes, you know, Get your sermons well done week after week there, Matthew. Yes, you know, but there's also a somewhat, somewhat sense that when you do this, you pastor your people as you preach to them. Uh, I don't, you know, I've only heard you preach one time in my life, but I thought you've been given a good gift of God to do this, Matthew Capone. Um, my long pastor in Northern Virginia, I often thought he has an unusual gift because when he preaches to us, he actually loves us as he preaches to us which I have never, I've not seen that all the time in pastors. You can be an able expositor, able speaker, but it's not the same thing as shepherding your people as you preach to your people. Um, so in some ways, you know, that um, language of the Psalms about David being taken from the sheepfold um, um, and uh, with integrity of heart, he led them, with skillful hands, he led them. So there's somehow both competence and character you know, in the best work we get called to do in this world. Yeah, you might say that uh, it took David a while to figure out his vocation and his occupation. Yes, I think he did. Of course it did. That's instructive to us, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't appear all at once, and that circle probably overlapped more. Like the, whole, the whole world around him, as little as it might have been in Bethlehem, you know, nobody saw him as being the future king of Israel. You know, he was the last of the brothers, in fact. It wasn't, wasn't even worth even showing to, to Samuel. Well, yes, there is another one out in, out in the fields with the sheep, but are you sure you want to meet him? Ah, you know. And, uh, of course, Bethlehem is now known as the city of David after all these years. So. Yeah, that's right. Bethlehem, which was an obscure city. Yeah. Um, so diligence is one theme in the Proverbs for sure when we think about work, the other one uh, is that of excellence. And I think of Proverbs 22, 29 a lot, which says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before um, obscure men. That was a verse that my mom would quote to me a lot when I was growing up. But that's a challenge as Christians, because there's certainly ways we can um, abuse that or misuse that. There's an excellence that's good. And then there's also you know, ambition in the right way and ambition in the wrong way. And so I'm wondering, as, as you've walked with many people through their, their careers, how do you talk to the tension of that, having a right ambition, having a right work ethic that doesn't become self-centered or doesn't become workaholism? Yeah. Well, again, it's a good question. We could talk a long time about it, Matthew. Um, um, I remember I'm one of four boys in my family. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether my father had the same conversation with my other brothers. I just don't know that. I never, never really asked them if he did or not. But when I was in my early adolescence, 
I remember one time after supper, he and I were talking one evening and he was explaining to me, he was not going back to the laboratory that night. And uh, I never even thought about him doing that actually. I just, he just explained that he wasn't going back to the laboratory that night. And I said, I'm not sure I even asked a question, but he went on to explain to me that some of his colleagues, who were people who I knew, because they were the people to my father's world. I knew all their names and their families. Um, he wasn't judging them as being bad people, but he said, I want you to know, Steve, that my life is more than my work. Um, I want you to know that I'm your father, the father of your brothers. I'm the husband of your mother. I'm a, an elder in our church here in, in town. Uh, I'm on the school board here in town. I go to the prisons on Thursday nights every week to lead a Bible study. Um, there's more to my life than the work of my life. He said, I know that my colleagues, some of them are there because in my world of the university research, you know, hope and pressure, um, be a lot of expectation to, as put it quite simply and maybe crudely, to publish or perish. Uh, and... Uh, so in some ways, he was expected to publish research-based articles for journals to achieve the kind of a prominence that it was expected of him in his work setting. Um, and he said to me, and it, well, again, he was not judging his colleagues for making other choices, but he was just explaining that he wasn't going to be at the lab that night doing more research to get another article published. But he said, you need to know that when I go to work in the morning, I will work hard all day long, Steve. Um, but I pray when I walk into my laboratory every morning too, to have insight into my work, to see the connection between my thinking this day and my thinking last week and last year, and to see, in fact, that he used this word coherence in the studies, study of my life, so that, in fact, what I'm thinking through actually is not a waste of my time, my energy, to make good use of the work that I do. Um, I took it as, you know, an, a word from my father as a 14, 15 year old boy. I wasn't looking for to be told that that night. I just heard him say those words to me that night. Um, I probably didn't understand what the words all meant to probably 15 years later. He and I were driving someplace in California and I left home by that time. And, and uh, um, I began to get a sense, you know, as I listened to him and watched him, that this decision to see vocation as a bigger word than, than occupation, um, it is the whole of my life, all of my life, that his work did matter. He wanted to do it to the glory of God. He wanted to pray for, you know, to see the, into the meaning of his work, to have it be good work for, to serve the, the world around him. Um, but that, you know, 15, 20 years later, his colleagues within the university often would speak about my father as, the person who knew the most in the world about his own questions, about his disciplines, about the questions of his, of his work. Um, and it wasn't because he was so, you know, driven by ambition to achieve and achieve and achieve. He did work hard. There was an excellence to his work. Um, he did publish, but it wasn't as if somehow that was the only thing that really mattered to him either. Other things matter, like the Bible study with the prisoner at prison on Thursday night and being in the school board and being an elder in our church and being a father and a husband. Those things were also part of my father's life, which was the larger sense of vocation of his life. Um, one of the little, little window into this, which keeps it all in Colorado, was that, as I said before, my grandfather bought and sold cattle uh, throughout Colorado. And uh, I was with him one time in Cortez, in the very southwestern corner of the state of Colorado. And 
he was you know buying cattle that day and if you've ever been to a livestock auction maybe you can imagine that different kinds of livestock are being sold at different points along the way and and i remember i was about a 10 year old at the time sitting with my granddad and and the auctioneer stopped his auctioneer's you know call selling the next kind of cattle by saying to my grandfather mr gilchrist what are these cattle selling for this week and we did not talk about it, Matthew. It wasn't as if somehow that was a, a point to reflect upon between grandfather and grandson. I remember just sitting there thinking about it, though, even as a 10-year-old, thinking, huh, so here you are, the man selling the cattle. You're asking my grandfather, one of the buyers of the cattle, to set the price for the cattle. Now, I didn't have categories like character and competence when I was a 10-year-old boy, but I remember thinking somehow he, he knows you will know the price of all the other buyers buying that day, that you were, will have kept up with the prices throughout the state of Colorado. You'll know the price for this kind of cow. But you'll also be honest about the price. You won't, in your mathematical wizardry, switch, switch the numbers at the last moment here because you can do it and make a, better, make a killing off the market that day. Um, so in some ways, both grandfather and father to me pictured to me this idea of, you know, of excellence at their work, um, knowing their work inside and out, but also, as my grandfather modeled for me, night by night, you know, getting on his knees with us as grandchildren, praying for the work of God in the world. So there was, a, in Benedict's terms, both a, an ora e labora about both my father and grandfather. It was very formative for me. That's, that's really rich. I think part of what stands out to me from that is just the power of generations that part of how we raise our kids in wisdom and you were taught wisdom was through the example, not just the words, but the actions of your grandfather and your father. And I love that idea of your father walking in and praying to God about the practical elements of his work, that he's not just, this goes back to Genesis one and Matthew 28. He's not just praying that people would come to know the Lord, although that's of course very important, but he's also praying that, God would help his mind as he does practical things in his job. Mm -hmm. which, is what, which is what prudential judgment is, actually. I mean, it is like seeking the flourishing of the city for Daniel and, you know, his contemporaries, really. I mean, if we take the story as a good story to reflect upon, his work really was to be the political counselor for Nebuchadnezzar and for Darius and, you know, and uh, um, Belshazzar um, and to make good judgments about military resources for the Babylonian people and for agricultural resources for the Babylonian people, you'd have to actually pay attention enough to what's going on in the world to be able to say, speak thoughtfully and intelligently and rightly about what the needs are, what the, what the situation actually is. Yeah, that's just a rich, I, yeah, I, I love that. And I think the other thing that that's helpful in that, as you've pointed out, that he recognized he had multiple vocations and that's, you know, what I'm thinking right now is I think about the book of Proverbs is that's exactly right. I mean, the book of Proverbs talks about being diligent in your work and it also talks about parenting. I mean, the, the book itself lays out that there are multiple vocations. And so to be wise, we don't pit those against each other, but we realize, yeah, this is life in God's world and he's called us to a variety of tasks. I mean, you're a writer and a thinker and a teacher, and you're also a father right now who's become a grandfather again with your daughter. Right. That is all that is true. It's all, all that is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Well, Steve, I'm just so grateful 
for your time and the gift that it is to us. I'm going to be thinking about a lot of the things we've talked about. I will be thinking about Daniel being perplexed and I'll be encouraged by that. And I'll be thinking about the two commissions, the one in Genesis one and two and the one in Matthew 28. And I'll be thinking about the great commission and the fact that teaching everything that Jesus taught includes an enormous amount of things. And of course I'll be pondering other things as well. So I, I certainly have grown wiser walking with you over the last hour or so. And I, I hope that many others will as well. Matthew, it's, as I told you in the note last week, when you asked about this, I said, I, even though I don't see you or know enough to be close to you physically very often, I said, Matthew, whom I have loved. So even with a distance between us that there has been, I, you know, I have had this affection for you since I first met you and have hope for you in your life and the work you've been given to do. And I'm glad to see you there in my own home state of Colorado, native that I am, and you're serving the people there of Colorado Springs. So. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate that, Steve. Yeah. Welcome.